Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 175 of the Intercooler Podcast. Dan Prosser here. Um, And it's a bit of a different episode, this one, because this was our first ever live podcast recording um, in front of an audience of 120 people or so at a fantastic venue, uh, Henry's Car Barn, which is just um, a brilliant spot for a gathering like this, for a live podcast recording, also a storage facility um, not too far from Gaydon. So to Henry's Car Barn, thank you so much for making the venue available to us. We had another Henry as our special guest, TI contributor Henry Catchpole. Uh, so Andrew and I interviewed Henry in front of the live podcast audience and we spoke about all sorts. The main topic was the future of fun with cars. So clearly there's an awful lot for us to get our teeth stuck into with that topic. None of this would have been possible without our sponsor, Footman James, the classic vehicles insurance specialist, celebrating its 40th year in 2023. Thank you so much to Footman James for making this whole event possible in the first place. You can find out more about Footman James and what they can do for you on the car insurance side at footmanjames.co.uk. Um, Henry, Andrew and I were delighted to be sitting in front of a beautiful restoration by seeing a vehicle design, um, the results of the Dynamics and Light Weighting Study, DLS, that gorgeous, gorgeous car that was um, the perfect backdrop, really, for the discussion that we were having. So again, thank you to Singer Vehicle Design for making that car available to us. Now, hopefully you enjoy listening to this. The full conversation was just over an hour and a half. So this is the first chunk of it. The second part of it was a Q&A session with the audience. And we will release that as a separate podcast episode in a couple of weeks. So you'll be able to hear that soon. Um, so enjoy. We are going to do more of these events. So just stay tuned to the podcast, to our social channels, to the Intercooler app and website. We're going to announce details of the next one very soon. So if you couldn't make it to this first one, we hope to see you at the next one. Welcome to the very first TI Live recorded podcast. Thank you all so much for being here. My name is Andrew Frankel. I'm one of the founders of TI. Sitting next to me is Dan Prosser, uh, the other founder of TI. It started about four years ago. And we can't agree on where or even when it was exactly, but Dan came up to me and said, I've got this idea. Uh, we had a conversation and everything that happened since then as a result of that. Uh, we also have Mr. Henry Catchpole with us, uh, who you will remember from his time as Features Editor of Evo and from all the amazing videos that are plastered all over the internet of you driving fast cars fast. Um, and he's not the, well, not the only members of the TI Massive here this evening, so um, I'd just like to point out one or two others. I'm not even sure where they are, but Andrew English is in here somewhere. So, Andrew, motoring correspondent for The Telegraph for how long? 
25 years. Um, and a man who can write with equal erudition on the future of hydrogen fuel cells or his slightly curious love of spanners. Um, we have, I can see Joanna, Joanna Fidalgo here, um, our ace powertrain engineer, biker, K-car obsessive, um, who writes for us on everything from the Japanese drifting scene uh, to how to fix the carburetor on your Spitfire. That's your supermarine Spitfire. Um, Mel is here too. Where is Mel? Mel Nichols. Um, to those of you of a, of a certain age, and I'm certainly one of them, um, you won't need any introduction to Mel because he is the man who in the 1970s and the early 1980s is the editor of Car Magazine, did more to transform the face of motoring journalism in this country and, a world, and around the world than, than anybody else. So um, welcome, Mel. Uh, it is, it's, it's very good to see you. And uh, I think, finally, Colin Goodwin. Where is... <laughs> uncle Cole. Here's our agony uncle. This is a man who thinks it's a good idea to respond to people's genuine requests for car advice by suggesting to them that all their problems would go away if they just bought themselves a Formula 5000 car. Um, so, so that is us. Um, I have a couple of thank yous to do. Uh, firstly, thank you so much to uh, everybody from Footman James, our classic car insurance partner here this evening. Um, Footman James have been in that market for 40 years uh, this year. They run their coffee and chrome events all over the country. Hundreds of people come to share their mutual passion for cars, and there aren't really any other insurers who do that. Um, Charlotte Mosley and her team are here this evening, so you can go and talk to them about what they can do for you. Uh, they've got all their literature out at the back, or you could just go onto their website, which I think is uh, footmanjames.co.uk. Um, Henry Warhurst. This is his place. It is entirely through his kindness that we are here. Uh, Henry's car barn is, I, I, I sadly, disgracefully, hadn't been here before today, and I've been spent the day wandering around. It is amazing. There are clearly other places you can go to get your car stored, but if you want to go somewhere and have your car looked after with the same love, care, and affection that you'd like to lavish on it while you're at home, this is the place to be. So Henry is over there. He'd love to have a chat with you about anything that can be done. Um, Final thanks, I guess, is to our, to our subscribers, which is you lot. Um, when we had the idea for this event, we thought, well, clearly the right thing to do is to give first dibs to the subscribers, and then we'll hand it over to the normal podcast audience, and then we'll sell them on to um, people who follow us on social media. We didn't have to do any of that, because you all, we sold out in less than three days. Three days. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I hope you think that, um, that we are worth it. And I hope that you have a jolly good evening. What next? Oh, yes, about us, TI itself. Uh, we're doing fine, thank you. Um, we are, we are we're doing really rather well. We get you know, many new subscribers coming to us every single day. But I mean, so I wouldn't really have to blow my trumpet. What I did want to say, if there is anything you think we should be doing or doing more of or doing better, please just come and talk to us and let us know. We always want to hear from you guys. Um, you are some of the most engaged, connected audience that anybody could ever want to have. Um, we're very grateful for that, but please, as I say, do come and talk to us. Um, yeah, and finally, a quick word about this evening. Shortly, I'm going to hand over Dan, um, and three of us are going to have a bit of a chat. It's loosely going to be themed around what we've called the future of fun. But we haven't scripted any of this, so we don't really know where the conversation's going to go. Uh, it's, it's better that way. It really is. We've done lots of podcasts, and the less you think about it, the more you just get on with it, the better it seems to be. I don't know why it works that way, but it, but it just does. Um, and then after that, um, it's over to you guys. Uh, we're going to have a Q&A session. Uh, the wonderful Kate Solomons is out there somewhere. 
with a microphone. Put your hand up. She will give you the microphone. Ask us anything. It can be about what we've talked about, or it could be about anything else. You can ask me what it's like to write off the first evolution integrale into the country. Um, you can ask Henry what it was like to write off a Mitsubishi Evo 7 while on work experience for autocar. <laughs> or you can ask Dan what it's like to park a Bentley on its side in a ditch. Um, it's entirely up to you. So that'll happen after we've had a chat, which is going to start now. Hope you enjoy it. Well, thank you, Andrew. And as he says, thank you to every one of you for turning up. We had no idea what to expect. We thought maybe we'd be flogging the last tickets on the door this evening. But they went in days. So thanks so much to all of you for coming along. Henry, to get us started. Yes. So I've been looking back <clears throat> at some of the stories you've written for us beautifully over the last 12 months or so. You had a high-speed passenger ride with an F1 driver in an Aston Martin Valkyrie yes. AMR Pro. Mm -hmm. You then drove the Valkyrie for yourself. Mm -hmm. You've driven the McMurtry Spearling, that yeah. extraordinary <laughs> little Batmobile thing. Mm -hmm. You've tested every resto mod under the sun. <laughs> I just want you to pull out a highlight from the last 12 months. Wow. Um, it is extraordinary. When you sort of, you, because of, I suppose, what we all do, there's a temptation to always just be looking for... The next yeah. thing, sort of, I suppose, purely in a, a sort of work capacity in terms of you've got to think what the next film's going to be, so yeah. I get paid. But, um, but looking back on it, it is extraordinary. I think the McMurtry probably stands out, um, which I didn't think at one point, if somebody had said sort of the, the most extraordinary car would be an electric car, then I probably would have thought it was very strange indeed. But that car, the, the electric part of it is sort of incidental, I, I think, um, and just the performance that it, it delivers is you, so can, far. Can you just try and... I know you wrote about it beautifully, Russ, but mm. could you just try and tell us as much as you possibly can, because it must be literally indescribable, but what is it like when it leaves the line with all the downforce on? How, how much power are we talking? So it's a 1,000 brake horsepower. Yeah. Um, I think the... the and 1,000 like, kilos of downforce? So it's 2,000 kilos of downforce. 2, kilos it's of full 23,000 RPM on the, the fans. Yeah. Um, the, so I actually drove it a few months before I drove it for the film, but it was in the wet, and it was at Millbrook, and we didn't film anything. And I did a standing start at that point, and it did uh, 0 to 150 in five seconds in the wet. So you've got a 1,000-kilo <laughs> car that's rear-wheel drive trying to put a 1,000 brake horsepower through those. It just it should not work. Yeah. You turn those fans on, you hear them spool up, and then you just release the brake. Is it, is it an enjoyable experience, or is it just horrible? I mean, I'd hate it. So I, I get scared in Taycans. Mm. So when I did that, it was okay, because yeah. actually 060 was about 1.9 seconds, which is fine, as it turns out. Mm. It was actually quite, quite smooth, and sort of it didn't, you didn't get as much of that, sort of that feeling that you get in a yeah. Taycan or a Tesla. When I did it in the dry for the film, and it was about half a second quicker than that, so it was about 1.4... As a proportion, 60. that's enormous. Exactly. Yeah. And that was really quite horrible. I mean, I've, I've sort of said to... I, I don't make noises and pull faces like that on film <laughs> out of choice. Sort of, you know, I, I don't go out of my way to I make myself say out of look bed. stupid. <laughs> Steady. That's, that's a whole other podcast. That sort of, you have to get another special guest. Keep going. Um, but um, yeah, that, that extra performance from it being in the dry 
was I don't think I was I prepared for that at all. I did two standing starts on the day, and you, you just the first one I did, I kind of almost didn't break at the right point at all because I was so overcome by just clinging did, on. Did it mess with your inner ear? Did you feel dizzy? Did you feel disoriented by it? So the the thing that we got wrong was when we were planning that film, we knew we had Myra and its massive great steering yeah. pad. And we thought, well, the, the sensible thing to do would be to, to show what the car's like with the fans off and yeah. then the fans on. And we had the idea of you've got the drone shot, drone shot overhead and you have a big you know, constant radius circle so you can just... Very, it's a very nice visual thing. And it'll be good for me because I can then build up to that limit. Yeah. <laughs> and it shows, I think, the, the level of performance because in any other car, that would be absolutely fine. You'd think that's, that's okay. I can just drive around like this and feel, is it pushing a bit? Is it going to oversteer a bit? The trouble is when you turn the fans on and suddenly you're pulling 3G and you're pulling 3G constantly in one direction, that's not very nice. Because yeah. at the time you don't you, want to, you you're just sort of melting yeah. into the side of the car, and you, yeah. you kind of you, it's it's really not nice. Actually, doing the figure of eight was much better because it's a you know there's peaks and troughs in terms of that G, but doing the big circle was a big mistake, and it was um, really quite unpleasant. And I did, I genuinely, I just had to stop after a couple of laps of, of doing that, and I'm sort of always thought I'm relatively fit, but but I was just I was I was breathing heavily, and you know your arms are heavy, and it's it's. It's really, really difficult. Your mouth goes dry. Yeah. Um, it was just bizarre. And they're, <clears throat> they're sort of productionising it, aren't they? They're building a few. They are. Selling them to punters. So are these going to be turning up at track days at the Bedford Autodrome? <laughs> 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 going around I in 30 know. seconds? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... it's um, so I think their idea for it, they're going to do the, the pure version is what they, they're calling yeah. it, because there still is only that, that one car um, at the moment, which is the Goodwood Hill record car. Mm. Um, but there's all sorts of things that they, they know they can improve. I remember talking to them at the time. Well, improve, you, make, you mean make it go even faster? Yes, and there were, sort of, I mean, there were things on that, that Goodwood run, for example. It got the record, but it has a 60-kilowatt-hour you know, battery in it, whereas the IDR that had the record before had yeah. like a 7-kilowatt-hour battery in it. So they said, you know, if we stripped out mm. just to what we would need, we could go much faster. And obviously it, it stops at 150 miles an hour in terms of that since... That's that particular one's top speed. And you could see by the front of, by the time we got on the bridge at the Goodwood um, Hill Climb, it was at its VMAX and he's you know, just sitting there waiting for, for Malcolm, basically. Wow. Um, so it, it, this is where the Pure will then take all this sort of stuff on and they've got a, a you know, better, bigger tyre and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, they reckon it's going to have another sort of 25% in terms of performance. And um, That's just outrageous. <laughs> so... <clears throat> I want to draw your attention to this beautiful car behind me mm. um, from Singer Vehicle Design, the results of the dynamics and lightweighting study. I just think it's gorgeous. If you haven't had a chance to have a proper look at this car, do so after this. I think you'll be astonished at the quality, the detail. It is a gorgeous thing. Mm. Um, and it's a real trend, isn't it, at the moment, these reimagined iconic cars. You've driven plenty of them. Yep. Where do you stand on these things? I mean... I just want to see something more affordable. <clears throat> but I find that stuff like this, they're the cars that I'm sort of most excited by these days. Yes, it's, um, it's very tricky. Like you say, a lot of the, the films I've done this year have been 
on resto mods and there seems to be more and more of them and, and I love them they're, they're generally great fun and they're always interesting there's something different about each one um, the the big caveat you seemingly always have to put in with them is it costs yeah. this amount it's of problem, money, isn't it? which is, is very, very different. Yeah. I, it's one of the reasons I, to, I really like, I drove the Alphaholics recently there, a little Super R, the, the saloon, which I thought was just wonderful because it looks very standard and prim and proper, and yet yeah. it's, it's as rorty as a GTAR. And what does it cost? <clears throat> that one, I think we insured it for £480,000. But the thing that makes me feel better about the alcoholic stuff is the fact that they've obviously they started their business doing the uh, mail order parts so and that is obviously for a car that's gone back to bare metal has mm. you know, a beautifully crafted interior and everything yeah. so you could i like the idea that you could go out buy an old alpha and then you can cherry pick bits and they will sell you all the bits off the shelf which is not how a lot of people want to do it but they see it as yeah we just i just like these cars um which look completely original that have just, um, we know someone who's got an E-type that's just been breathed on gently by Henry Pierman of Eagle E-type. And you'd never know it from the outside, but I think it's got, um, it's got proper brakes, it's got the five-speed box, um, you know, the suspension doesn't rattle, it, it won't overheat. And it's just, and that need not be hugely expensive. I've always wanted to do one with a Lotus, an original Lotus Elan mm. um, because that is such a superb car in theory, but we all know the reality has, is not without its issues. So just to get a... A Lotus Elan, with, uh, maybe I might even put a bit of navigation and stuff like that in there. Well, just, you know, just, you know, and wait, just to make it usable. Because yeah. my theory is, and I've talked about this on the podcast and in various articles, that the amount of fun a car is, is how enjoyable it is to drive multiplied the num- by the number of times you feel inclined to use it. Um, and I think that if you knew you could go anywhere in your land and it wouldn't break down and you could listen to something if you're sat on the motorway and you could charge your telephone, um, you'd just use it more often, wouldn't you? Yeah. So why wouldn't you? And that need not be a £400,000 car. No. I think there's obviously these people are all trying to make a business out of it, aren't they? And if they can sell these cars to... Absolutely. Until yeah. ...and sell them for that much money, then yeah. that is the business model that's going to make them yeah. the most money. But I completely... And that's what I mean about the alcoholics, the fact you can buy bits and bobs and just update it and yeah. make it kind yeah. of better. So it brings it down to um, nearer... Well, my level. So. Mm, halfway sensible numbers, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So you may have seen the gorgeous dark blue Ferrari 599 GTO poking its nose out of the shed down here. Um, hopefully, you've also all read the story that we posted this morning, the triple test, including that car, with the F12 TDF and the 812 Competizione. Yeah. Um, you wrote it yeah. magnificently, of course. Well, of course. We, it was, it was... You sound surprised. Oh, a light sub. <laughs> it, was, it was a memorable day. Um, just sort of sum it up a little bit for us. I think you said, actually, this is the one that you would choose to take for one last blast across that road. It's just the one that... I was speaking to somebody earlier this evening, and I would say, usually when you do these triple tests, you've actually almost certainly driven all three cars in isolation before. So you kind of know what you're going to get. I'd never driven a GTO, I'd never driven an 812 Comp, and I'd only driven a TDF near freezing conditions in, the wet, in Wales in January, which is just about the last place or conditions you'd ever want to drive. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, I've never been so pleased to get a car back in one piece. Um, so I came to it without really knowing what to expect, which in our business is actually a very, very rare thing to do. And of the three cars, 
the GTO was just the one that you could just get into and drive fast straight away because it has this beautiful, um, I'm going to say it, analog steering, um, which has lots and lots of feel, and it just gives you constant. The TDF is bonkers. On a track, no question of the three, I'd take the TDF. Mm. And because the 812 Competizione is so... It's so weirdly usable because it rides beautifully. You just wouldn't think it, would you? No. Um, and actually, although it's more powerful even than the TDF, I think that's just because it revs higher. And all the power is concentrated right at the top end. I don't think at any given engine speed it's any more powerful. Um, and so it's no more of an animal than TDF. It's much more usable than TDF. So it's clearly the, most, the best, most usable car there. But actually, the one that just captured my heart was, was the GTO, which was... And we were talking, aren't we, about you know, the future of the cars. And these cars are such traditional cars. Yeah. You know, the first ever Ferraris were you know, front-engine, rear-drive V12s. And that's what these things are. And um, there's a bit of me which thinks that you know, however much there is to look forward to, I don't want to see the back of those sorts of things. Because you know, we, we had a ball in those things. And there is a certain... I don't want to get too... Um, whatever about this, but there's almost a sort of romance to it, isn't there? Just hearing those engines and seeing those configurations and their Ferraris and everything else, and it was just a, it was a fantastic thing to do. Yeah, and we'll keep doing those, won't we? Oh, yeah. We'll, <clears throat> as often as we plans. can, we'll yeah. gather three, four very special cars together. We have um, plans. And photograph them and shoot videos on, the, on them. And if there's any test that you're dying to read that no one else... Yeah. People done. have been putting them in the comments, actually. Really? Yeah. Good. Well, we'll do them. Yeah. Get around to Let them. us know. If you want to see, you know, fun combinations of cars, um, we'll see what we can do. Well, talking of fun, we wanted to be a little bit grown up this evening, didn't we? And try and have a too much. worthwhile discussion about what the future of fun with cars looks like. Because I think probably a lot of us here wonder. Maybe we worry, mm. um, but certainly it's changing. And having a passion for cars, um, it's changing a lot at the moment. Maybe faster than it ever has done. And... I actually think if you love cars, it can sometimes feel like this thing that you adore, that you have a passion for, is actually under attack. Um, we know that the sale of new petrol and diesel cars will be banned in 2030, actually whether or not they go through with it Never on that date. I don't Never know. That. Um, but certainly things are changing. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, both of you, do you worry about this? Do you think, goodness me, all the fun's over? Or is there other stuff that makes you feel confident and happy that we're going to be enjoying these things for a long while yet? I think, um, I mean, part, part of what you said before about the, the cars I've tested this year, as so many of them have been resto mods and that sort of thing, and you've I've really noticed that, I don't know whether it's, it's the product planning, obviously going towards 2030, and that they're just not producing putting effort into you know, yeah. ICE cars. <clears throat> there just aren't the number of launches this year, I, I found, of, of new cars, really, um, which is obviously concerning. Like you, I, I don't think it's going to happen in um, 2030. But we're also seeing things, obviously, like the synthetic fuels coming out, and there's a lot of hope you know, with things like resto mods that actually I don't see it dying out mm. at all. It'll be different. Um, That's the thing. It's going to be different. Yeah. And also, I think we have to think about, well, they're banning pure ICE cars in 2030. They have said that hybrids will go in 2035 without defining what their version of a hybrid is. It's, they say it needs to be able to travel a significant distance with nothing coming out of the exhaust pipe, but they haven't said what significant is. So that is wildly open to interpretation. Um, so I think that gets us to 2035, which means you can buy 
a car with an internal combustion engine in 2035, which means the infrastructure to support that will have to be around until 2045. So, you know, A, I think we have a lot of time still, and B, we'll find a way, because there are so many of us, there's such a big business out there. There's a thing called the Hobby Lobby, which people, you know, which is a very, very strong thing. Um, and people don't, you know, like having their fun messed about with, and they tend to get quite noisy. And when people get noisy about anything, um, then, you know, whether you represent a majority or not, then, you know, quite often people sit up and listen. So I, I am generally optimistic. I think we have had a wonderful time, but I, I just don't buy that, it, you know, this, oh, it's all over. Mm. Um, I also think that EVs, um, whatever our reservations about it. If you think about the EV, the first production EV came out in 2009, the Nissan Leaf, which was, what, 14 years ago? Yeah. Think about 14 years on from the birth of the car, what you had in whatever that was, about 1899. Well, it wouldn't have had air in its tyres and it wouldn't have had a steering wheel. So we are still so, so young, that whole thing. And, you know, the technology will advance. They will get lighter. They will get smarter. They will become more entertaining. They will be more fun to drive. And it will, I think you're right, Henry, I think there will be, it will be a different kind of fun. Hmm. But, that, you know, fun cars will continue. We will all still be able to go out there for as long as we want to and enjoy driving cars. It may not be the same cars. It may not be in the same way. Horses. Do you remember Horses. People don't, <laughs> you know, that's the thing. You know, cars came along and people stopped using horses as public transport. But people still enjoy riding horses. Mm. There, are, there are a number of them out there. Um, you know, my only concern is that it becomes a, a thing that, you know, that, that, that you need to be quite wealthy to be able to enjoy. And I think that is a concern. Um, and again, you know, I think the horse analogy works well there. Um, because, you know, you can do all sorts of things, you know, if you can afford to, you know, to have a horse and run it. Um, and if you can't, then you can't. But, you know, I think people will find a way. I think, I think just that is human nature. Is if it was, humans want to do something, they'll find a way of doing it. And there's always the Cuban model. You know, if we can't, if we're not excited by the cars that we can buy, we can keep the cars that we've got going. And there are plenty of those. Yeah. And as you say, update them, stick a screen in them so you can connect your phone and use them daily. Um, I think there's going to be a little industry around that. And it's not going to be crazy six-figure cars. I think people are going to start taking real-world cars like 996, 911s, and E46M3s and putting modern comms in them and refreshing them so you feel like you're driving a new modern car, but it's still an E46M3. It's still got a blinding engine. Yeah. Um, I just I feel quite sunny about it, quite optimistic about it all. It's also, you know, there are people who will tell you that the internal combustion engine is not dead either. Um, yeah. It just needs to be emissions-free, so you can run it on synthetic fuel or you can run them on hydrogen. I once drove a BMW 7 Series. Uh, they had a fleet of these things running around Germany about 20 years ago, and it was a 7 Series, and it had a switch there. And one way, it was a petrol car, and the other way, it was hydrogen. And you literally just turned the switch, and, and they just put, it just put a different fuel through the engine. It wasn't very efficient, and you know, storing the hydrogen um, at the sort of temperature that was required and under the sort of pressure that was required wasn't easy. But you know, that's what technology is for, isn't it? Mm. Um, so I'm not even convinced that the internal combustion engine has had it, and that cars will just have to have manufactured noises and everything else, because I still think there's a good chance that in one way or another, um, they'll live on. And do you think there's, I think there's something interesting there as well in terms of actually the, the type of engine that might 
um, be there in the future. So we've obviously had this horsepower race and there's this sense of, well, it's not going to keep going above and beyond in terms of performance and maybe we're seeing you know, the last naturally aspirated V12s out there, boo, but we're going to see cars that are smaller, lighter, might not be as fast, but as we have all said at some point, fast is not the be-all and end-all. No, no it's, it's, I mean, that, it, it's, it's so obviously the way to go. Mm. You won't find a car manufacturer. Do. I can remember talking to um, one of the engineering guys at McLaren and saying, you know, you, you make um, cars that are, by comparison to your rivals, they are lighter. Um, and, you know, why don't you just focus on that and just cut the power and make the cars lighter? And he said, because we wouldn't sell any. Because ultimately, people need to know that whatever they buy has a higher 0 to 60 time and it's got this amount of power and that sort of thing. And I just really, really hope that in time, people begin to realize just how much better a lightweight car is. And just how much more fun. Singing the praises of the Alpine. Sort of, I've been driving the A1. Yeah, but they can't sell them. <coughs> no, I know. I know. But That's the problem. In A110, it was, you know, it's the only 10-star car. I had one of those. You bought one. You used to have one of those. I had one of those. Yes. <laughs> Do you remember that? I don't talk about it. <laughs> I remember now. You did have one of those ones, didn't you? A couple have turned up. It's trolling me. <laughs> so thanks to both of you. Um, but, I mean, that's why we are all... What are we? Are we? I don't know. I mean, are we, are we dinosaurs? I don't know. We're, we're the exceptions, aren't we? What we want is not what the market wants. Seems that what way. the market wants is a crossover SUV, something or other. Seems that way. Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts. So I think the other thing that I reflect on is that there's strength in numbers. And I look in front of me now and see how many people have turned up to watch and listen to us talk about cars. And turn up in great cars as well. Turn up in fantastic cars. And we see these temples. Can I, can I just ask, because I'll forget if I don't ask, what's the favourite car you've seen out there? Not the most expensive or the fashion, but what car do you just look at and go, hmm, Alpha SZ? Can we have a, a, an arm in the air for the SZ, please? I was asking for the driver and lots of you. <laughs> unless you. Unless you've got a whole fleet of them out there. <laughs> like, wow, there are more than I thought. <laughs> well, anyway, bravo to you for turning up in the SZ. Was that your answer? It wasn't, actually, no. 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 What are you saying? I, Is it the I, black Clio 182? That well, yeah, exactly. Which I had to park around the back. I yes. got told it was kind of, you know... It's gruffy. So non grata, but there we go. Um, no, it wasn't, wasn't that. Um, sure, I, I, partly because it brings back heavy memories, the, um, the Aston out there, actually, the, the Vantage. Yeah, the M430 just, yeah. oh, just gorgeous. Because, uh, I saw it and felt the more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. funny. And certain cars, you just see certain cars and you just think, "Cool, that's yeah. me." Yeah, yeah. Go on. So, uh, what do you want? My favourite car. Um, I'm going to say the Alpine. Both of them. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> but what I what I was going to say is that I I feel quite optimistic about the future of all this because. I just think there's so much passion and enthusiasm out there. These places, these are temples to cars, places like this, Henry's Car Barn. And there are so many of them springing up around all over the place. And you look at the none good, as good as this. None, none as good as this. <laughs> and you look at the Goodwood events, 
And, and the turnout yeah. there and the enthusiasm, the level of passion at the Festival of Speed. Were any of you at the Festival of Speed? It was rammed. On, was the Saturday, on Thursday. Yeah. Thursday. Yeah. Thursday is the kind of like the build-up day, the sort of quiet day. Because busy. move. Yeah. And you can't just say, well, you can't do that anymore. Mm. You just can't. I mean, it's, that's why I just think that we'll find a way. We'll find a way. Here's something else for future of fun motoring, which um, out there is a 911 Dakar. Yeah. And there's obviously also the Huracan Storato as well. Yeah, yes. Most people know my, my affinity for taking cars off-road um, and liking a bit of gravel and stuff. Do you guys see that as something that there'll be more of, taking cars yeah, away I th- from the I th- public I th- highway? I think, I think there will, because um, I think so much of this stuff, and I'm not saying this about anybody here or any of the cars that are out there, but generally speaking, people buy cars like that because they, you know, they, they quite like what they think the image of themselves that the car projects. And we know that people like buying SUVs because that makes them look adventurous and outdoorsy and I completely understand that uh, and if you can do that and also be in a 911 um, then you know I think that is immensely powerful and I think we're going to see more and more of these things and it'll be interesting to see whether they ever become core products or whether they are just sort of like you know it's, it's, it's all very sort of niche at the moment yeah. but all things are when they start mm. um, it's a really good question I don't know I, I think maybe the UK is certainly England it's probably the worst spot to have one of those cars. If you look at parts of continental Europe, parts of California, you know, other parts of the world where they have these huge open deserts. E-grounds. They have, they have gravel tracks sprawling all over the place. Yeah. Then that must just be the most fun you can have. And no one's going to come and tick you off. But do you think people are going to do that? Do you think, well, there may be somebody in this room who can ask this question. Do you yeah. think people are going to go off-roading their Dakars? Well, some will and some will be a bit protective of them, which yeah. I totally understand. Yeah. Um, I, like, I think that people like to know their cars can do stuff without necessarily wanting to do that stuff themselves. Um, How far will your watch go down in the, in the sea? <laughs> <laughs> My watch, hang on, I think it'll go down to 1,100 metres. Is that useful? It has a helium escape valve. When I'm <laughs> over a kilometre under the water, I find it very useful indeed. <laughs> but it's, it's an extremely good point. Yeah. People like having stuff that can do stuff that they don't necessarily want to do themselves. It's why people buy Range Rovers without mm. having any intention of ever taking them off-road, and cars that do 200 miles an hour, or cars that will yeah. go under seven minutes around the Nürburgring. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It also feels a little bit like a sort of a, a backdoor way of introducing people to this idea that the, the next greatest car doesn't actually have to have more power or more yes. grip. Um, yes. sort of almost that thing by the back door. Bring it on. It's a, it's a way yeah. of... Sort of saying, yeah, this is more enjoyable actually on the road as much as off, but they've just dressed the whole idea up in, um, yeah, some tack-on plastic yes. wheel trims. <laughs> it is a Rover Streetwise evolved, isn't it? You said it, not me. You said it, not me. <laughs> I take that back. Um, Too late. I suspect, it, it, you know, it might be if things do really change with, uh, over the next 20, 30, 40 years, perhaps we'll get our kicks driving cars through organised events. Okay, so motorsport is the most obvious one. Yeah. Um, but also getting together with mates and going for that drive. This. Doing this. Doing this. Yeah. People wouldn't have been doing this, well, I mean, to an extent, but, you know, sadly, we're not the only people who, you know, get together and um, have gatherings of, you know, of, of like-minded enthusiasts. And I think that we all sort of feel 
common cause. And maybe it's what you were saying earlier. Maybe we are feeling that, we, that, that you know, the world, the tide is turning ever so slightly against us. And maybe we do feel the need to, you know, to get together and just you know, share the love a bit. And, yeah, you'll find that you're absolutely right. People will just find other ways of doing it. And I've, I'm always conscious when we do these things that we can't just talk about how very well-heeled people are going to be having fun with cars in future. And I, I've done a couple of auto solos, right? And I rhapsodize about these things because they, they look like the most Mickey Mouse form of motorsport there is. And actually, it, it is the most accessible form of motorsport, probably, um, certainly in full-size cars. And I just love it because you probably spend 50 quid. Yeah. And you turn up and you're there for half a day on an old airfield or it might be a grass field. It might be um, at Donington Park. They've got that, I think they call it the tarmac lake or the asphalt lake, just a huge concrete apron, tarmac apron. And they've put a few cones out. And you turn up and you just think, what is this? What a waste of time. Why am I here? And then you're sitting on the start line and you will be crapping yourself. It's that feeling again, isn't it? It's feeling, because there is something about knowing that a bloke has got a stopwatch, and everyone's going to know what time you've done, and you're suddenly so nervous, and you think, I don't know how to operate a car. The nice thing is that you can bring it back even even sort of lower than that, with, you know, you've said the Dakar and the Stratus. I remember um, my parents were very much into cars, and they got into cars uh, through the MG Car Club. That's how they, they met. And so some of my early formative driving years were spent, actually before I probably had a license, bumping around fields somewhere in, I don't know, it was probably my uncle's MG M-type or something like that, sort of things on the face of it, pretty unsuited to bumping around fields. But it was uh, Jim Carner, and it was literally stakes in the ground yeah. here, and generally yeah. you'd have a passenger with you, and the passenger would, the driver would put a bucket over their head, and then the passenger would have to say, sort of, <laughs> right or left, or slow down a bit, or speed up a bit, and try not to bump into that tree. I'll what never tree? do the car with a bucket over my head. No, it's, it's, um, it's pretty unnerving. It's not great if the passenger says, right, right, and then instead of saying, okay, says, right, because that's the <laughs> as incorrect. Exactly. Yes. Mm. Yes. That's not not good. And I got told off for that um, quite spectacularly. But um, we didn't hit the tree, so it was fine. But it's really it's just good fun. Again, there's, yeah. there's literally no sort of you know, yeah. timing element or whatever. It's it's but it's so much fun. Mm. And yeah, potentially sort of. When I was a lad, um, where we lived, we had a couple of fields mm. at the back of the house, and my father was usually away working during the week. And he'd come back on a Friday, he'd fly back in on a Friday, and he'd go to whichever hire car desk had the smallest number of people there. And he'd go and he'd hire something. <laughs> and he'd drive it home and he'd go, off you go, boys. Yeah. And me and my brothers would just go, round and round and round. We'd absolutely destroy these things <laughs> for an entire weekend. On a Monday morning, he'd drive the wreck back to the hire car company, give them the keys back, and no one ever questioned it. We had... <laughs> Lots of MG Midgets, Mark II Escorts, that just shows how old I am. And that was, it's got nothing to do with the future of fun, has it? But I just thought I'd... Uh... <laughs> you must have been on uh, Mazda launches back in the day. There were a couple down on Campbell Airfield. Yes, I flew a Hawker Hunter. Yeah, there you go. And I did the extra 300. I think we both written about it. There you go. But on the, when you came down from up yonder, and there was then this old Van Diemen chassis, which is just naked, no bodywork or anything, and it had knobbly tyres on the front and slicks on the back, and a Honda Fireblade engine or something like that, and it was raggedy alike, and they just put some cones around the, the infield, 
and there was some sort of rudimentary timing gear, and they could not get rid of the journalists. We would be there till. Sort of, yeah, <laughs> I bet you driven hypercars just worth a million pounds yeah. and had less fun than exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. It was just absolutely great. And you think of that's that's well, you yeah. need a field and you know the you need a field and a something. Basics of, of four wheels yeah. and a chassis. Hard Mark II Escort. And you'll, yeah. have a, you'll have a great time. Yeah. Um, so we've set aside plenty of time for the Q&A. Um, we, we've got ten more minutes of the three of us, but please start thinking about your questions. And when Kate starts offering the microphone around, do throw your arms in the air. And you can ask whatever question you want to humili- humiliate Andrew or Henry. Um, not me. <laughs> but... <laughs> Just to sort of wrap things up here for 10 minutes or so. Car journalism. Mm. How has it changed, both of you, in the time that you've been doing? And what, actually, what I want to ask is, do you miss the time when it was just a magazine and it was just printed product <laughs> and it was every month or even every week and you were focused on that? Can I say, can I be honest about this, given that we're not a magazine? I think you should be. Yeah, I miss it. Yeah. What, I, what I actually miss is the time. Um, you know, if you are a modern motoring journalist, everything happens to, has to happen yesterday. You know, you drive a car and you know, and you write your story, and, and, and off it goes. There's no time for quiet consideration. There's usually no time for you know even going somewhere. We used to go off and do this, that, and the other. Or, you know, go abroad, and and that's all gone. Um, what's replaced it is this need to provide copies, provide words. Um, as fast as you possibly can. And I think one of the things that I'm very proud about what we've done at TI is we do take long stories, we do give people long deadlines, and we do try to... I mean, you know, Mel is here, and he mastered the art of that beautiful, long-form, considered, um, intelligent journalism. And that's, you know, that's what we're trying to do today. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the world has changed so much with the advent of the Internet... Um, and the advent of video, and the advent of these strange things called podcasts, which I'm still trying to get my head around. Yeah, same. Um, but, um, yeah, and I, I, some of it's good. I, I, I enjoy doing this, and I never thought that I would. Mm. Um, I always thought that I, if I ever did anything well, it would just be, you know, writing stories. But it's good to be challenged, and it's good to learn new stuff, even at my immense age. Um, so, yeah, that's me, Henry. <laughs> but you're so good at all this other stuff. In fact, you both are. You're both annoyingly good in front of a camera. Um, you can do all this stuff. You are both thoroughly modern motoring journalists. It's very kind of you to say so. I, th- I think the, the I got into the industry like you. I thought I was going to write for you know, Evo as it was then. That's, that's what I wanted to do, and that's what I thought I was going to do. Just be writing, and somebody would take photographs, and that, that was it. The, the internet we had evo.co.uk at the time or whatever that existed, but nobody really did anything, let alone wrote it. I had a thing called a typewriter when I started. And we had to write Alessandro Nanini across the top of everything you wrote, because that was the width of... that you had to write with it. <laughs> um, and so every story we ever wrote started with Alessandro Nanini across the top of it, because otherwise, when it came to be typeset, it wouldn't fit. Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. And, and it was film, film and cameras and stuff like that, no digital yeah. cameras. And it was... Yeah, the, the video came along, and it was that period around about 2008 when um, the iPad came out, and there was a financial crash, and everybody was saying magazines are dead. Yeah, thankfully they're not. Um, but it it just felt I I didn't had no idea about getting into doing the filming stuff. Top Gear was out there, but it was something so completely different. Yeah. It was just there was 
you know, no chance really of, of doing that, even if you, you wanted to. Um, but then YouTube came along and I held out against it for quite a long time um, and didn't really enjoy it to start with. But I think I just felt if I want to have a career in this that's going to last, then, then I've kind of got to give this a go. And I still find the talking to camera bit quite awkward. Um, yeah. I, I think I've learnt how to probably get the best out of myself. Um, and I find it less awkward now um, doing the editing stuff because I've spent a lot of my days, sadly, looking at myself on a screen, which is pretty horrible when you first do it. But actually, the, the strangest thing, I think, is hearing your own voice. That's what people find really uncomfortable. And because I've now done it an awful lot, I'm not freaked out by the sound of my own voice. I accept what it is. So that's made life easier. But I love the production of... So I love the, what we get at the end in terms of films. Yeah. But I have to say, if I go back now and do a, a written piece, you know, it's for you guys or, or, or a magazine or something, and go on a photo shoot, it feels like a holiday. Yes, it's lovely, <laughs> it isn't it? really <laughs> genuinely You talk does. to people like Clarkson, you talk to Chris Harris, what they actually love to do is to write. Mm. You know, Clarkson, when he goes on holiday, he writes, because that's, that's how he relaxes. And I know that you know, Chris has been writing a book, and he's really enjoyed it, because... You know, he just doesn't write that much anymore. No. Um, and so I think we're very, very lucky to do, do what we do. I still enjoy writing the voiceover and stuff I do, but it's very different. And yeah. the actual process of making the films is so time-intensive as well. That's the sort of the thing that... If, because if we, if we shoot for the entire day, the videographer and editor will still want another few hours of footage to be able to use in the edit, whereas particularly with digital cameras now and the fact they can and look in the back of the camera and see that it's sharp, you can get through a photo shoot surprisingly quickly because you know you have a set number of photos that you will use. And once you've reached that number, well, it's a good job. We might wait for a sunset, but that's, that's it. Whereas the filming, you just use everything yeah. and more. So, um, yeah, it's a very different mm, It's changed experience. a lot. Yeah. It's changed a lot. So the next point in my notes, when car journalism goes wrong... <laughs> I don't want to steal your thunder because I'm sure some of you want to ask about the crashes we've had um, but do you remember a while ago, a good year and a half ago we recorded a podcast on when car journalism goes wrong and lots of people commented on that and got yeah. in touch because they found it interesting um, but without giving away any trade secrets, you know, are we all chucking cars into ditches every single week? Not we every all... single week <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I, you, I tend to like to have the odd week off. Yeah. Um, shit happens. It, it just does. You know, if you do what we do, um, and you know, there are these requirements from editors who never have to do it themselves, um, that you know, every photograph you have to be you know, that sideways, and, you know, and, and so stuff does happen. Um, but actually, I think it happens much more rarely than people probably suppose. Um, then again, there's an awful lot of stuff that happens which we never get to find out about it because it's not in anybody's interest to publicise the fact. Mm. Um, but it, well, we, we've all done it. Uh, I don't know about the rest of the motoring journalists in this room. I can't imagine there are many who haven't been something at some stage. I've just made eye contact with Colin Goodwin there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it happens. Um, yeah, if you spend long enough driving cars reasonably quickly on road or track... You're going to have a scrape at some time, aren't you? Yeah, particularly when you have photographers who go, oh, go on, just one more run. That's yeah. the, that, that is, the, if you're, you're do-what-we-do and you're trying to do silly cornering shots in front of a camera, 
when the photographer says just one more run, what they mean is as many more runs as I want until I've got the photograph. And because you know this, you try to think, well, okay, I'm going to do this in one, so I'm going to give them the biggest slide of fun. It's going to be smoking, it's going to be this, that, and the other. And that's when it goes wrong. I know this from bitter experience because that went wrong for me in a GT2 RS in 2010. Did it bite? Yeah, yeah, it bit properly. Yeah. I mean, I can remember being literally like this and thinking to myself, there was no more lockdown and thinking, this will be good enough for him. And then I thought, and I can remember thinking to myself, it's not coming back. Yeah. And it kept going. And it was one of those really weird accidents because there was, we were on some airfield somewhere in Germany and there was this huge mound of earth which I was heading for. And I can remember thinking to myself, one of the three things is going to happen here. I'm either going to miss it, whoopee, or I'm going to hit it head on, at which, God help me. Or I might just clip it. And that's what I did. And so, and, and so I, I sort of like glanced off the side of it. And the only reason the car was immobilized is it popped one of the radiators at the front. It was back doing its thing about three hours later. And although there is somewhere, there are some footage, because they had a camera on me in the car, of me saying every swear word under the sun. Actually, when I think about it, I think how bad it could have been. Mm. Um, but yeah. It got off. But that's, that's not just when things go wrong, that's why things go wrong. Yeah. And it's all photographers' fault. Should we tell, should we tell a story that's not actually ever, ever been told before? You we, want to tell we, it? We were in an accident together. You want to tell it? Yeah. Who was yeah, driving? Yeah. Can we just get this right? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to tell it? Yeah. yeah we, on, no. Well, you should probably tell it. You, okay. you had a bit of... So we, we were doing a group test for the magazine we were working on. We can call the it... The greatest ever group test. We can, yeah, the gravel group test, wasn't it? This was with Evo. Yeah. Um, and you'd gathered, you'd done so well, you'd gathered, gathered together some amazing cars, rally cars, you had a modern WRC Probably Ford, my best blag ever. Fiesta, yeah. yeah. Convincing M Sport to send down a full Fiesta WRC car. You had a Tuthill 911, yeah. you had... Not what uh, I crashed, neither was the WRC car. No, Aerial Nomad. Didn't crash that either. Um, and a bowler. Yep. Yeah. The, the Polaris, I didn't crash. No, the Polaris, no, no, you didn't no, I didn't crash, crash that. But, but yeah, we had a rally. It was uh, Sweet Walters Arena. Walters Arena. Yeah. So a proper rally venue in South Wales. Yeah. Perfect spot for it. And you were howling around in this bowler all day, and I was just watching it, seeing it lean over, thinking that's going to tip over, mm. and it would get through the it corner. Okay. Robots, it? And it would come back, and I think that's going to tip over, and it would just come back. And then you gave me a ride at the end of the day. Yeah. And it and didn't come back. It tipped over. It tipped over. And it's a big slab-sided thing. So it went up like this on two wheels, slapped down on its side, and then onto its roof. Quite graceful in a way, wasn't it? Nah. <laughs> and, and Dan, presumably you were quite used to parking things on their sides by then. This, uh, well, I had, yeah, I had some experience. Yeah. But this was on the roof. That's well beyond the side. Oh, okay. We had so to do the harnesses unclip and drop yeah. down into the kind of... Yeah. Fall into the roof, into yeah. the ceiling of the car. Yeah. Um, any delicate bruising? Yeah, have this crotch strap. <laughs> I do. Yeah, I have children now, so it's fine. So do you. Yes. So, so, not much damage. But you've got a fairly clean record, haven't you? Relatively clean, yeah. Yeah, it was. I think my before I started that sort of when it all went really wrong, and therefore I've, I've sort of. And I've never. I, I hate. I hate getting things wrong. Not just driving was I'm just I'm one of those people I don't like anything's wrong so I hate even spinning a car even if it's yeah. sort of yeah, you're not going to hit anything I just I don't like it maybe it's the, the rally driver in me as well because if, if it goes wrong then you generally hit, yeah. a, hit a tree or something like that yeah. it's really not good um, but um, yeah thankfully I've, I've been I've kept my nose fairly fairly clean 
over the years. And another one of our contributors, Ben Oliver, did send us a note before we started here mm. with a question for you. Excellent. So maybe this is a good way to start the Q&A. Oh. And he, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but he said, given that you started your car journalism career mm. in not particularly auspicious ways yeah. while on work experience with Autocar, yeah. has your recovery from that point to here, 20-odd years later... Is that the most spectacular car journalism career recovery? It must be pretty remarkable. It's, it's not a way I would recommend anyone else gets into car journalism. For those of you who don't know, I was on uh, work experience with Autocar I was, whilst I was at university. Um, and I had a pretty dull week, to be fair. I sat there and I wrote some nibs, but I was happy because I was in a car magazine. It was you know, seeing behind the scenes and all that. It was fantastic. Towards the end of the week, they were going to do their naught to 100 to naught test um, up at Bruntingthorpe. And uh, Chris Chilton was there, and he said, you, know, you should come along too, so you can see what the, the testing's all about. And I thought, this is, this is fantastic. And we went in his Mitsubishi Evo Extreme, 7 Extreme long-termer. And I remember we, we pulled into a petrol station, because those things had tiny tanks, and he said, oh, if you need to fill this up later, then it takes... And I didn't hear the rest of the sentence, because he clearly thought that I was going to drive this thing. And at that point, the most powerful thing I'd driven was my Mini Cooper. And long short of it, I got into this thing. He got in some Digitech um, Mercedes CL that he picked from Stoke Poges. We went up the M1. The speeder was massively overreading, so I lost him. And, and I just remember every time this thing came on boost, I thought I was going to crash it anyway. So I was enormously relieved when I got to the Brunningthorpe gates and parked it up and thought that is it, I've, I've delivered it, this is fine, I'm happy, and went off. And we went and did some laps and passenger seats of, of stuff with them all going incredibly sideways. And then all we had to do was deliver the cars from the gate to the bottom of the, the big long runway, which is the, sort of the muster point. And it was wet, and I remember thinking that uh, there's standing water there, so be, be very careful of that. And then the, the words of Chris Chilton rang in my ears when I'd asked him, sort of, how do you learn to do all this, this fabulous sideways stuff? And he said, well, you, you practice on a place like this where there's nothing to hit. <laughs> and it turns out that if you're going fast enough, there is always something to hit. And I remember coming over this, this left-hander onto sort of the, the, the access road to the, the main straight, and it's a sort of cresting left-hander. And I thought, come on, Henry, you've got to, just, you've got to do this. So just, just push it a little bit through here. So I pushed it over there and came just over the crest, and I could feel the thing understeering, so I thought, I'll lift off. That's a, that's a good idea. And it wasn't a good idea at all, because <laughs> I was going backwards before I knew it. And then we hit the grass, and so we seemed to speed up. And then we went into the trees. And I remember sort of coming to sort of thinking uh, and, and panicking, thinking perhaps if they hadn't seen it, I can reverse it out of here and then sort of <laughs> wipe it off or something. And I tried to start it and my foot wasn't on the clutch, so the alarm went off. And I, did, and I was just trying to start it for the next time. I looked across to my left and the passenger side, there was just this big V where it had wrapped itself around a tree. And I was enormously lucky, fairly obviously, because it would be on my side, it would have been... Not you wrapped around the tree. At all. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I just, I, I can clear as day, just remember getting out of the car and walking across the wet grass and seeing the juice, you know, making my shoes wet and just, just and Chris Chilton coming around the corner in um, E36 M3 and just clearly looking across, seeing me walking across the grass and just, I remember seeing the car just dive as he hauled on the brakes and then asked what had happened and yeah. I wanted the ground to swallow me up, and I had to spend the entire day there just apologising to everybody, including Peter Robinson, who's obviously a 
yeah. yeah, they all warmed up eventually. He told me how he put crashed a Diablo and put it on the cover. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you, I mean, presumably at that point, you just thought career, a career in car journalism was a no-go. Oh, no, no. I was completely sort of, yes, I thought that, yeah. was, that, was, that <laughs> was it. Um, but I, yeah, it was about a year or so later that I then rocked up at Evo. And I, was, I confessed up to them straight away, yeah, because I thought the industry is so small, they're going to know anyway. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, thankfully, they hadn't seen it, so... It was, um, yeah. Brilliant. I then nearly discovered later that I nearly didn't make it through sort of six months at Evo because they all thought I was much too slow in a car. <laughs> because obviously the last thing I wanted to do was go and wrap another car around because that really would have been curtains. I realised that was very bad. So I just thought I'll just yeah. deliver everything there and be... Drive really slowly. Yeah, yeah basically. Very sensible thing to do. Same, same, yeah, and they just thought I couldn't drive quickly. So. Wow. There we go. And that was it. So after that, we moved straight into the Q&A. Um, as I said at the start of this episode, you'll be able to hear that Q&A in full in a couple of weeks. For now, thank you so much for listening and please stay tuned to the Intercooler podcast. Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts.